Hello, my name is Rosemary, and I am a racist. I'm 78 years old, and I joined Racism Anonymous about two years ago. I'm a social worker in LCSW, and so I served hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And, you know, I mean, one man was sitting on a bench with me one day. He was 85, and I was in my 40s or early 50s doing an assessment with him. He started crying, and he said, you know, and he worked at a fairly large company here in Palo Alto, and he said, I made it my duty to never hire a black person, Rosemary. And look who's sitting here next to me, taking care of me, trying to give me resources, trying to give me hope. And uh, he cried. And he just talked about that, about his judgment, about his racism. To hold that as an honorable thing to do, you have to take care of your racism. I have to take care of my participation in racism by speaking up, by gaining the courage to speak my truth, by bearing witness to how deeply devastating racism is. That's what attending this group has done for me as a black person. It's not easy to sit in a group with white people and Asians and and I'm sure for whites it's probably not easy. I realized that I had participated in racism as much as the person who directed it towards me and my children and my community of black people, that I, I participated in it because I didn't speak up. Hi, I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune, where every week we explore the ideas, values, and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. You're a little bit racist. Well, you're a little bit too. I guess we're both a little bit racist. Admitting it is not an easy thing to do. But I guess it's true. Between me and you, I think everyone's a little bit racist. Ron Buford is the pastor of the Congregational Community Church of Sunnyvale, where he founded Racist Anonymous. Members are encouraged to honestly consider their bias towards others on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, or any physical difference. When they gather, they discuss the ways racism and bias occur in their own lives. They do this with the intention of working through a similar 12-step model and spiritual system used to treat addiction, starting with admittance of a problem, then self-reflection, group sharing, mindfulness, and behavior modification. 
The group provides members with a place to speak safely and honestly, giving everyone space to realize what others are experiencing and the kind of work that needs to be done. And there is no shortage of work to be done. My name is Ron Buford. I'm pastor of the Congregational Church in Sunnyvale. One of the jobs I've had in the past was a job of working on the identity of the United Church of Christ. Mm. And um, because I came into the United Church of Christ through something people know as the Congregational Church, and there were four bodies that got together, the Evangelical, Reform, Congregational, and Christian, and they got together in 1957, I think, uh, to form uh, what we call the United Church of Christ today. Uh, What's interesting about it is that in 1798, in that tradition, uh, we were the first ordained an African-American person to ministry in a non-black church. Hmm. Uh, we were the first ordain a woman in 1853. Uh, and we were the first ordain an openly gay person in 1972. Well, so, and since that time, we seemingly have made a lot of progress. In the Obama era, racism was what I might call somewhat asymptomatic in our culture. Now, it's obviously there, and people uh, are experiencing it on a daily basis. But in 2016, we saw it become more symptomatic and more um, emboldened in some ways. Did you, do you think that's a proper diagnosis? And, And did that feeling inspire you to do the work that you're doing now? Well, um, I think that is a very accurate assessment. The breakthrough moment for me with Racist Anonymous uh, came as a series of things. One, I spent some time in London, and um, in the UK, in fact, and, and I was struck while I was there that I encountered less racism directed toward me. Mm-hmm. Um, in this country, uh, little things, I mean, there's not, I mean, nobody's come after me in a white sheet. But, but you know, I have to watch out for the police. Um, uh, things like um, if you go to a restaurant and you're doing a, a deal and, you know, things like um, how things get handled and how you're respected determine how well the deal will go. Um, I had to arrange to get the right waiter and the right setup because if I didn't, the wrong thing would be have maybe a 50% chance of happening. Right. You'll be disrespected in some way. Uh, those kinds of things happen. You go to uh, a mater d and there are two people, I, you and I go, uh, they're going to assume you're the person that's um, in charge. And that gets to be annoying. It happens with women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I went to London, though, that didn't happen. And I thought, wow, this is kind of neat. It's like being on a race vacation, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, somebody asked me once, they said, because uh, being gay and black, they said, well, you know, why would you want to be gay too on top of that? Uh, and I said, well, you know, I, I didn't pick any of those things, you know. If I had a choice, I would have gotten into the six-foot-two, blonde hair, blue-eyed line <laughs> if I knew I was coming to America, you know? Right. Uh, but anyway, in 
while I was in uh, London and those things didn't happen, I thought, it's kind of nice. But I noticed they weren't free of racism. Right. Different group. Different group, yeah. (laughs) I mean, they they have some issues with Eastern Europeans and Mm -hmm. they have some issues with people from the Caribbean and India and so forth. But, you know... They had some yeah. anti-American sentiment, but that was a whole different thing yeah. than than racism. So are you implying <clears throat> that potentially everybody is a little bit racist? Yes, yeah, as, as Avenue Q says, yeah. I think <laughs> I think I think it's true. I think uh and it really it was as a result of coming home from that experience and the fact that at the church I serve now, there's an AA meeting in the room next to my office every day. Every weekday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so I, when I put those two things together, you know, I thought, hmm, I wonder what would happen if, since people are in such a denial about racism, even among my friends and colleagues that I get to support this idea, the hardest thing is that first step is to admit that they're racist. Well, I'm not a racist. Oh, let's call it something else. I say, no. Let's call it racism. Yeah, so I wondered how that came about. So you were essentially eavesdropping on an AA meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, I, you know, and so I'm curious how that, how you formed the curriculum, because, you know, that mirrors a lot of the AA 12-step system. And I even noticed that you, you sometimes say the serenity prayer well, yeah. Up front. We stole it all from them. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, first of all, the serenity prayer, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr mm-hmm. is the author of the serenity prayer. Right. UCC minister, theologian. Is that right? So, so it's part of our history, um, United Church of Christ history. Uh, but secondly, um, I have great respect for the 12-step program. I think it's a helpful program. Works for some people. doesn't work for everybody. But I thought it provides a methodology for dealing with it. And the denial thing is, I think, the important thing. We are in denial about being racist in America. Anything else, we'll say. Um, And so, and there's some, we redefined racism. Yeah. We say racism is uh, attention to any exterior difference that causes you to treat another person negatively. So that includes um, race, social status, you know, eye color, size, gender, sexuality, and so forth. Um, Because those things do cause us to treat people differently. And even within our own category, say as African-American people, we can then turn around and be homophobes. What's that about? Right. You know, how how can we be, well, it, it, civil rights doesn't really apply to those people. Of course it does. You know, so we each have our little fiefdoms, our little areas. And yeah, our light groups. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for example, so, some of the most discrimination I experience, I experience within the gay community. Well, what's that about? Hmm. Because we can deal with our own issues, but we still want to hold on to our own little private 
um, bias and right. bigotry. Some people believe that black, brown, minority people can't be racist because the theory is that it's not just racism, but there's power as well that's engaged. So racism plus power is what's really mm. what's problematic in society. And my only issue with that definition is, is that um, we all have some level of power. And, um, and where do you break it off? How much power do I need to have before I can be a racist? So I think, as you suggest, the hardest part of this process is raising your hand and acknowledging your own racism. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can help take us, take, take us through the process, because there's something I saw in the workbook. Um, the first question you ask is the first time I encountered or saw racism, racism fill in the blank. But the second is the first time I saw my parents do something racist. That's right. And what's so important about that question? What's, what's important about um, the first question is really a warm-up question. <laughs> right. So the real ball. question yeah. is, is the parental question. Yeah. And so by the time you get to that second, and it takes people a lot to open up and say that. And I usually model it, and I tell the first time I saw something racist happen, and, and the first time I saw my parents do something racist. And then we ask other people to do that. What happens in that time is community is built. Mm. Trust is established uh. as a result of sharing something that is that personal. And all the people who came saying, I know I'm not a racist, almost in that instant mm. realized, I need to rethink that. Yeah. There is nothing more community building or, or courageous than being vulnerable. Absolutely. Right. So essentially, that's the design of that question. Absolutely. Like, I'm going to bear witness to my own vulnerability in front of all these people. Well, yeah, I mean, at the heart of most of our religion is some form of confession. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. And, um, and you can't confess if you can't be vulnerable. Um, and, and so it's important. It's an important step. And some, and what happens is people don't instantly go start saying they're racist. Um, um, it takes people weeks. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we're dealing with a current events in society right now that is potentially more polarized than it's ever been, and um, you know, people are suffering. Families are being separated at the border police brutality, all of the things that now have become endemic to our society. And, um, and it's, it's hard to underplay in any way the suffering that people are going through. At the same time, I would ask you, do you feel like what's happening now is almost a necessary thing that could end up being um, a good thing in the sense 
that it's almost like the body telling us that we're sick. So it is encouraging us to take some personal responsibility and get involved and enact for change and find that life of purpose and have social impact. I mean, at the same time, we see record levels of people running for office and taking to the streets. Do you feel like maybe there's some positive end? So, yeah, I I think in, in, in my theology as a minister, I believe that creation was never finished. Uh, that uh, God put us here on the planet as the finishing agents of creation mm. to bring about the things that are are not quite right. We're, we're to fine-tune and fix those things. People say, well, if there's a God, why is there sickness and death? Because our work isn't done. That's why. Mm. But when it's done, there won't be these things. We got stuff to do. You know, and racism is one of those things. Um, you know, we can't just sit back and say, oh, the world's awful. There's racism. Of course there's racism, sexism, homophobia, all these things. But we can we can get beyond them Yeah, well, with I think some tools. With some tools. And I think what you're saying, which is so powerful um, and gives me hope, is that uh, it's the idea that this is not something that's happening to us. Like, we can be active participants in creating the society that we envision as ideal. Absolutely. I I think the big thing about Racist Anonymous, at least for me, even though I started with the idea that we're all racist, I didn't really believe it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I believed it, but I didn't believe it. You know, it's like, how bad could I be? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, after I started doing the program, and this is like Buddhism in this way. Buddhism is about mindfulness in so many ways. And what this program does is increase our mindfulness about the ways that we are racist, that day in, day out, we learn to just shut off paying attention to. But when you begin attending a racist anonymous group, you may think you're not a racist, but after coming to a couple sessions and sh- sharing with people and carrying yourself around and interacting in the week, you say, well, there's some evidence. is not easy work to do. So to support this process, we sat down with our friend, Evelyn Carter. Evelyn is a research scientist at UCLA within the Bruin X division of the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. She works to develop, implement, and test the efficacy of programming to improve diversity and campus climate. 
So my name is Evelyn Carter, and I'm a social psychologist. So that's kind of the technical thing that I do. Um, but I answer that question in lots of different ways. So I'm a researcher. I study how people decide what counts as racial bias and how they have conversations about it. Um, and so I think that's probably the broadest, most accurate way to describe what I do. Okay. So, well, then what what does that actually mean, racial bias? Like, what is an implicit bias? So racial bias means lots of different things to different people, depending on your group membership, depending on where you grew up, depending on what kind of you've paid attention to in the world around you. So racial bias in general is just the notion that people from different groups, racial and ethnic groups, are treated differently as a function of who they are. Um, and so that can manifest in all kinds of ways, very explicit ways, right, where you say, I don't like you because you are a member of X group, um, or you say, I really like you because you're a member of X group. Um, but it can also, and so that's really explicit, but it can also manifest in more implicit ways where we've essentially been inundated with all these kinds of messages. And so our brains make these associations as a function of the stories we've heard, as a function of, you know, the things that we've seen um, in the news, the TV, media, things like that. So an in-group is basically the people who are like you, right? So you can think of your in-group in terms of people who look like you, who sound like you, who come from the same, uh, you know, uh, hometown as you do, who you share any kind of important feature of your identity with. Somebody that you could look at and be like, you're like me, right? And so... The good news is, right, we have all kinds of feelings, positive ones, toward members of our in-group, and that makes sense, right? There's evolutionary reasons why that's necessary, um, and also, you know, just kind of social affiliation reasons why we want to like people who are like us. What also happens, though, is that if we have an in-group, we also have an out-group, right? And those are people who are not like us, the people who don't share the same background, who don't look like us, who don't talk like this, what have you. And what research has shown, actually, is that most of discrimination happens because of in-group favoritism, right? So because we're giving more good stuff, we're giving more positivity, we're being nicer to people who are in our in-group, and less because of out-group derogation, right? The kind of outright being mean toward people who are not like us. And so I think it's important to think about who you are classifying as your in-group and your out-group, because that is also going to be a sign to you, like, who am I kind of more naturally giving the goodies and the free passes and the benefits of the doubt to? And who might be the individuals who are losing out on those, on those same positive benefits because I don't classify them in the same way as like me. What if you don't have an in-group? Or, okay. or is society or the kind of the natural evolution of society as a melting pot in some ways sort of dissolving the in-group? And I'll just, I'll use myself as sort sure. of like a personal example. I moved 11 times before I was mm -hmm, seven, mm -hmm. all over the world. I have a Russian, Jewish, last name, Irish, mutt, ish middle name yeah. Jeff which is not even a name from anywhere <laughs> it's like an American mutt uh -huh. name my parents were Methodist they were Jewish like in and we lived in Brazil where I had to speak Portuguese and basically my whole upbringing was a process of like assimilation yeah like I was always fitting in yeah. trying to fit in yeah. somewhere and yeah. as kids are so tribal they're always looking for like an in-group yeah but in a way like I never really felt like like I belonged yeah. any particular place, yeah. which gives me sort of a strange feeling of not having a particular mm -hmm. in-group. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know who my in-group yeah. is exactly. Now, of course, I'm a white male yeah. in America. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I have, I suppose, some inherent advantages, mm -hmm. whether I like it or not. Yeah. Um, but are we headed towards a society 
that is maybe a little bit more global in that mm-hmm. sense, where the in-group isn't as specifically yeah. defined. Yeah, well, I think that your point brings up something really uh, important, which is that our in-groups don't necessarily have to be stable, right? Mm. So something that you were bringing up is that you were kind of, you know, shifting your identity as a function of all the various places that you've lived. And so we also know is that the in-group or the identity that is most salient to us can change as a function of the context, right? So I think an example that I can use is that I identify as Christian and I live in a building with, ortho- with mostly Orthodox Jewish people around me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not usually aware of my Christian identity, right? But I definitely was when I moved into my building and (laughs) noticed that everybody on my floor, except for me, had a mezuzah on their door. Right. And so that's an example of a time where whereas a person who was Christian might not necessarily automatically come to mind as my in-group member. Suddenly, if I can find somebody else who, you know, is available to go grocery shopping with me on a Saturday, that means something very different. Right. So I think the answer to your question is that our in-groups shift as a function of who we're around and where we are and our personal identities. Um, And so I think that the kind of goal that I would see is to allow everybody to have what's called like a dual identity or really a, you know, kind of multi-layered identity, right? Which says, I recognize that we all identify as kind of this broad umbrella, depending on how broad you want to get, right? Like you could start and be like, we're all humans, right? And so I think that recognizing the different spaces in which we feel most comfortable as a function of, you know, kind of who's around and who's like us is how we can start to notice our in-groups. Also acknowledging though that that definitely shifts as a function of, you know, lots of different things. Right. So... Everybody kind of has that, right? Because everyone has formative experiences. And so does everyone have some form of implicit bias? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I remember when I was watching the, um, was it the vice presidential debate or maybe it was a presidential debate. It was one of the debates and it was, it was because it was Hillary Clinton and she said, you know, everybody has implicit bias and the whole half of the world was an uproar, right? Like, oh my gosh, she just called everybody racist, but that's not the point, right? The point of implicit bias is understanding that as you were saying, all of us are socialized in a particular way and so those automatic associations are not ones that we are immune to um, and we have to be very aware of where they're coming from and if not, then we're just going to be walking around these associations in our head that absolutely do influence our behavior toward people. Yeah, so give me a spectrum on how implicit bias expresses itself. Okay, so I like to think of it as kind of your implicit bias are the associations that you have deep in your brain, and then you have these filters, right, that are social norms, your personal beliefs, all of that kind of stuff. Now, what can happen with implicit, with tests of your implicit biases is that we're trying to assess your behavior, your motivation, your reaction before your attitude can get put through that filter. And so you have to measure people's behavior in terms of stuff that happens before the filter, right? So Mm -hmm. that usually means that implicit bias impacts the nonverbal behaviors. So things like the number of eye blinks, right? If you're really uncomfortable, you probably blink your eyes a lot. You're doing it right now. <laughs> For demonstrative purposes, of course. Uh, oh, I get my. it. <laughs> if you, um, you might be more, uh, less likely to make kind of ad hoc comments, right? Like, yeah, uh-huh, during conversation. Your body posture is going to be more closed off. Um, you're going to be avoiding that person's eye gaze, right? These are all the kinds of things that our bodies um, do without our conscious control. And so because implicit bias is something that is happening before that conscious control kicks in, then the behaviors that are not consciously controllable are the ones where we see that kind of evidence of those biases. I think I read somewhere that 
like 97% of what we do is like subconscious, right? <laughs> there's, so, some, there's something like that. My mom actually, she used to say, I forget exactly what it was, but she was like, most of your communication is your body language and your tone of voice. And so she'd always be like, tone of voice, Evelyn, body language. No, but, you know, we go through life all the time and we're not really thinking about yeah. what we're doing, right? Yeah. This is all just happening. We're wired ourselves up. We've trained ourselves. And generally that stuff is relatively like banal, right? Mm-hmm. But not always. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that your point is really um, a wonderful one, right? That there are so many things that we do without even thinking about it, right? But that's where the problem comes in when it when it refers to bias, yeah, right? Because right. a lot of times what's happening is if we're not careful and aware of the different ways in which we treat people, right? So let th- then it matters. So let's say that you are interviewing two candidates and you're a white guy, you're interviewing a white guy who happened to go to the same university that you did, right? And you also have to interview a black guy. He also did, he did not go to the same university that you did, right? So not the same race, not the same university. Dak is stacked in, not in his favor. Now, what we know in terms of our implicit biases, you might find it more natural to have a conversation with somebody who looks like you. You guys can talk about your shared experience at this university. You might build a better rapport with him. Your conversation with him might last a little bit longer than the one that than the length of a conversation with the black candidate who did not go to your school. However, what research shows is that those tiny differences in terms of the length of the conversation, the rapport that you're building, probably the amount of smiling that you're doing is going to impact how that candidate reacts to you, right? So it's a very Mm. dynamic process because Mm. they're reading your body language and the black guy's saying like, oh, he's not being as smiley to me. I'm wondering if I'm not doing something enough, right? Does he not like me? Is he evaluating me oddly? And all of that stuff is going to keep him from bringing his best to the interview situation. So something that might seem very natural to you just to connect with somebody based on shared physical characteristics as well as a shared experience can be subsequently very harmful for a person who does not have those same shared experiences with you because that bonding, that positivity isn't there in the same way. So like where if I was in that particular situation where I would be able to step out of myself and look at myself and be like, Mm -hmm. ah, like that is a pattern that you're, you're, that is a behavior based around a pattern that's wound up over all these years through all these different things. And now I have to consciously unwind some of that pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing that you could do in order to foster that awareness is to just look at your life, right? So think about where it was that you grew up. Who were the friends that you had growing up? What were the kinds of influences that, um, you know, really shaped you and your attitudes and your beliefs about things, Um, right? So like I grew up, for example, um, in the Christian church, right? And there are lots of different beliefs about homosexuality, about um, same-sex marriage that kind of were ingrained in me as I was growing up. And those are things that I had to work to be aware of and unwind as I, you know, kind of went along my journey to being a more egalitarian person when it comes to members of the LGBT community. So I think being mindful of kind of how our backgrounds and our experiences are really shaping the way that we see the world around us is really important. And then another thing that I think is really easy to do is look around and see who your friends are, right? So there's a lot of research showing that, you know, and this is not very surprising, we exist in silos. So we're pretty good within our society at coming together when it comes to work, right? Mostly because we have to. Um, And in some situations when we're like using 
shared resources, right? So like parks or grocery stores, things like that. But when it comes to social stuff, when it comes to the places that we go out to eat, the places that we, you know, relax, go to the movies, go shopping, those are pretty segregated along racial lines as well as socioeconomic status lines, right? And so what that means is that if you don't have friends who are from different backgrounds, you're probably missing out on an opportunity to get some of that information about what life is like for other people who are not like you. And that also means that because you're kind of getting the same amount of input or the same type of input from from different people or from the same people rather, that you're kind of going to just see one way of the world around you. Um, and so I think that those two things are the first way to become aware of your biases because you can, you know, very easily say, like, where, what am I missing, right? What what part of the cultural knowledge do I not have? Right. And then how do I go out and get it? Yeah. Well, you're also, like, freaking me out a little bit. And, like, <laughs> and Sarah, our producer, I'm gonna, this is going to get pissed because I'm going to screech off-road for a second. <laughs> but, like, what... So you're talking about restaurants and all these other yeah. things, but what about social media and yeah. art, and artificial intelligence, right? Yeah. Because th- that's like crazy because there's like algorithms that's just going to like spit back like our in-group to yes. us exactly. all day. Yeah. So this is actually something that I've become really aware of and really freaked out on actually on my own. And so one of the things that I've done, so like on Facebook, for example, um, you can select your news feed to either show you the most recent posts or it just kind of picks the top stories, right, using that algorithm. And so if I've actually switched my setting every time I remember to, to go to most recent so that I can see all the different varieties of things people are talking about, right? But that is one of the things that really freaks me out is that we have to be very aware of all of the different inputs that we're getting. And if we're seeing something that makes us feel too comfortable, that makes us, you know, say like, oh yeah, I agree with everything that I'm seeing here. That's consistent exactly with the way that I see the world. That's probably a sign that we're not doing enough to stretch ourselves and find out information that might help enrich our lives and our perspectives by hearing from other people. Yeah, that's a really good tip. I'm going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's get into some actionable things that, that you can do to address some of these biases. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of the things that I think is um, rather simple is to do essentially a version of what Kari Kawakami and her colleagues referred to as counter-stereotyping training. Now, that's really, it's a really jargony way of saying that basically anytime you get input that is consistent with a prevalent stereotype, you've got to find information that's going to override that input, right? So when stereotypes are created, when those associations between a group and a particular category are created in our our brains, we are seeing lots of information. We're paying attention to lots of information that reinforces that stereotype. So for example, if I have the stereotype that black people are athletic, I am going to be more likely to notice when I see black guys playing basketball, right? Or black athletes on the tennis court or on ESPN. And that's going to reinforce the idea in my mind that what black people do is play sports. If I want to undo, unwind that association, right, and to override that stereotype, I need to make sure that I'm finding information that doesn't just go consistent with that stereotype, but that challenges it, right? So maybe talk to somebody who doesn't know how to play sports that is also black. So find counter-stereotypical examples. And I think that that's really important because it's essentially, again, just overriding the associations that we had. Now, the sad thing about it is that you can't just undo years and years and years and years of socialization with, you know, reading a few news articles about really clumsy black people. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest that. <laughs> it is an ongoing process, but part of it is saying, what are the things that I are, that I am taking for granted as true because society has told me those things are true? And right. how do I find information that really challenges it? So, like, help me out, yeah. you know, because 
because everyone has these issues that yeah. they're grappling with. So give me just like things that I can do, you know, literally every day. Yeah. So I think exposing yourself to information, right? That's one of the ways that you can gather that counter stereotypical information, right? So whether it's on social media, making sure that you're reading news articles that talk about a number of different perspectives on a given issue, right? Or going out to coffee with that friend of yours who always seems to say things that you're just like, I don't really get where you're coming from, right? And using that as an opportunity to say, I think that you and I might have different perspectives, perhaps based on the backgrounds that we have. And I'd love to hear more from you about, you know, where your perspective is coming from. So it's really about that exposure. Um, my personal favorite way to do this, um, I like talking, obviously. So I love talking to people, but I also love reading. And so one of the things that I really encourage is for people to read books, read, there's lots of blogs, right? Think pieces that are out there written by people talking about a whole host of experiences. And so even if you're living in the most homogenous community ever, you can still find some way to connect with the stories about people who are from different communities and learn about what their experiences are like. Give me a good book to read. I just read, I'm not going to remember the author's name, but the book is The Wongs Versus the World. And it is about a family actually that lives in West LA, I think maybe in Beverly Hills. And it's during the time of the Great Recession. Um, And it's a Chinese American family. And so the father kind of, you know, made his way up from nothing. And then essentially hijinks ensue as he Mm -hmm. loses his money in the recession. And it's about their family. And it's just a really, it's nice because um, it's a story that, you know, is kind of a traditional, quote unquote, everyday American story as you would read it, right? But it doesn't center on around white people. It centers around Asian people. And so I think that that's also really nice, right? Because it starts to disrupt the idea that we can only tell simple, or we can only tell really exciting kind of traditional American stories if they're featuring white people. And that book is not, it's a, it's a really funny. So <laughs> I highly recommend that one. Um, and then I would also recommend Homegoing. And that one is by Yagi Yassi. And that book literally changed my life. Um, it is a book about Um, twin girls that are born in Africa, um, and they are separated during the slave trade. One ends up going to, getting taken over to the um, the States, and the other stays behind in Africa. And the book follows their lineage. And I think that that book is really nice, because for me, as a Black woman, as a descendant of slavery, I remember reading it and feeling like I connected with somebody who was finally telling my story in the way that I didn't even know how to articulate. Mm. And so I think that if, if there are people out there who are wondering, like, what does it feel like to not know your lineage past your great-grandparents, right? What might it feel like to know that you are a descendant of slavery and all of the different historical racism and current racism that you face? That book is a fantastic and really invigorating way to read and learn about that experience. And I think books in general are so good, right? I have some friends who have a um, 20-month-old, and they read to him 40 minutes a day, and they are really intentional about getting together a library of books that talks about all different kinds of experiences, right? So he is um, biracial, and they read lots of books about the March on Washington. They read books by Native American authors. They read books about members of the LGBT community. It's just a really intentional thing that they are doing to say, we know that our son is going to be inundated with all of these associations that we don't want him to have. And so we have to start early by disrupting those and helping expose him to information that really counters that narrative that he's going to be hearing as he continues to grow up in this country. Mm. And so what what are your goals? Like, what represents success for you in this work? I don't know if I think about what success looks like, mostly because I think I've resigned myself to the fact that the most successful 
thing ever would be to not have a job, right? Like, my my goal is to combat racism. And so if I were really successful, I would have combated it and it would be gone. Right, um, so you're trying to work yourself exactly. out of a job. <laughs> Fortunately slash unfortunately, I don't think that's happening. You might have soon. a job for a while. I, 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 I think I will. <laughs> so I think um, kind of my personal goal is to educate as many people about bias and to encourage as many conversations about it as possible. Because one of the things that I really realized is that I'm super comfortable talking about identity like all the time, right? I don't, you know, realize some people like whisper when they say black, right? Or like Asian. I'm just mm. like, I don't, I don't do that, right? So I'm out at the re- at restaurants talking. And I'm like, oh yeah, black person. People are looking at me like, Evelyn, what are you doing, right? <laughs> but so I think that I'm very comfortable with it. And I, I've recognized that a lot of um, conversations with other people have really been good because I bring that kind of comfort and we just like talk very candidly. And I want everybody to feel that kind of um, comfort when having conversations about this because the topic of racism is already, you know, contentious enough. There are very real differences in the way that we see and experience the world. But I wish that we could have conversations about them that, you know, really recognize the perspectives of, of those who are experiencing the racism and discrimination yeah. and help to, you know, validate their experiences and figure out how we can work together to make change happen. So fostering more conversation in a very comfortable way is probably my ultimate goal. Yeah. Well, it's good that that's your goal because you're a wonderful connector. Oh, and, thank and you. And a prolific talker already. I get a sense <laughs> of it in the best way. <laughs> Well, Brene Brown has a wonderful quote. Yeah. She says, uh, and I'll butcher it, but it's uh, um, it's hard to hate up close Yeah, move in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you can connect with people, um, you know, through your enthusiasm, yeah. um, I think that, that that brings us closer together. And that, uh, that gives us a sense of belonging. Yeah. And, you know, these biases perhaps start to melt away. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think it's really important, too, because, you know, there are so many stories that I've seen, um, you know, from people who are saying, you know, like somebody came up to me and they said, I've, they've, I've never seen like a black person before. Right. And it's like, oh, suddenly by meeting a real person, it's not just I don't see you just as the stereotypes. Right. But I see you as the actual individual that you are, not in spite of your group membership, but I don't see you as just your race or your gender or your sexual orientation. And I think that it's really important to come to a place where we can, instead of seeing a person through the stereotypes and our assumptions that we place on them, see them as individuals and begin to celebrate all of the parts of their identity that they think are important and to value those as we really foster those individual uh, connections. All right. Thank you, Evelyn. You're doing great, great work. And I think you should run for office when you're done with this. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine running for office, but I would be happy to work behind the scenes on somebody's campaign if they, you know. No, you're you're running for office. (laughs) (laughs) Check in with me in 10 years. We'll see what happens. Evelyn and Pastor Ron taught us how our collective biases, although seemingly internal, ultimately result in experiences of discrimination and oppression towards those who we see as other. They underline the importance of us all individually doing everything we can to combat implicit bias and the unfortunate results it produces within our society.
Here are the three actionable takeaways we offer at the end of every Commune podcast. Number one, collective action and activism. If you have privilege or power, use it to empower other groups. Get involved with social justice-oriented groups near you. Connect with motivated people both online and off. If no groups exist, start one. Searching Facebook groups or meetup.com are great places to start. Number two, share your insights with friends and family. Action starts with awareness. And number three, expand your horizons. In addition to changing your Facebook settings, like Evelyn said, remember that intergroup contact and friendships are the best way to reduce bias. This means working to treat outgroup members like in-group members. Like she said, small interactions matter. Holding a door or offering a smile can go such a long way. Work to expose yourself to new ideas, experiences, and perspective through books, TV shows, social media, and making new friends. We also have Pastor Ron's guidebook to starting your own racist anonymous group, available for free at onecommune.com. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Come back every week for new episodes. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. We'll see you next week. 